This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. The time for empty talk is over. The ECB is ready to do whatever it takes. Because Brexit means Brexit. Outer Blue by Amundi. So hello to everyone. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure uh, being with you uh, for this uh, Amundi conversation. My invite today uh, is uh, Sagarika Chatterjee uh, from the PRI. Hello, good uh, morning, good uh, afternoon, Sagarika, depending uh, where we are uh, in different parts of the world. Hello, hi, lovely to be with you. So it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, for those who don't know you, but I don't think there are numerous, uh, you have uh, important responsibilities in the PRI and you are also instrumental uh, in the preparation uh, of the Glasgow COP uh, by the British authorities. Uh, so it's a great pleasure to have you uh, today for the conversation that is going to be focused uh, on, I would say, an analysis of the results uh, of the Biden summit, uh, as that is the name of the summit now, uh, that was held uh, last week uh, in the US on a virtual basis, but yet. Uh, so I think the idea of this conversation is really that we dig in a little bit uh, into what has been announced uh, and that uh, we provide uh, to our listeners an overall analysis Uh, of uh, what has been decided uh, and uh, maybe using uh, your insights and experience to look a little bit uh, how do you see uh, that planning the work for uh, for, Glas for Glasgow. Uh, so maybe uh, uh, maybe we can start uh, by looking a little bit uh, by uh, at the US announcement um, because uh, in a way uh, President Biden, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, almost doubled uh, the commitments uh, that were historically taken by President Obama that by the way didn't pass the Congress at the time but that's another story. Uh, so uh, how do you, uh, what is your analysis uh, of the positioning uh, of the US uh, in this summit uh, and of the uh, announcements they made uh, on their side. Thanks so much, Jean-Jacques. So I think this is a reset moment for the US and for all other countries around the world in terms of emissions reduction. And so just to put that within context, um, the US has now committed to a 50 to 52% emissions reduction by 2030 um, based on a 20, um, sorry, 2005 baseline. And the thing that was really interesting to me was one of President Biden's opening remarks at the Leaders Summit last week was, when I think about climate, I think about jobs. And if you read the White House's um, statement that they put out, I um, you know, just did a quick control find on the word jobs. <laughs> It's actually mentioned 10 times um, in their statement. So this is a president that is reframing what climate action is about and also very aware, I think, of you know, US midterm elections and what's going to happen in four years. Um, and that action needs to happen very fast and needs to be politically active acceptable within the US. Then I think the other thing that was interesting about the US announcement um, and what they're doing is this whole of government approach. Um, so different um, aspects of government were featured at the summit and are taking action. And that includes from a treasury side through to national security, through to energy. Um, and that I think is also um, quite a, a unique um, feature of this particular government. Then when I think about, well, what does this mean, like the reset moment that's set internationally? Um, and I first turned to, well, who was at the summit? 
um, this wasn't just the high emitters, the EU, um, you know, who you'd expect to see there. Um, China, President Xi was also there. Um, we also had Canada. But I think what was interesting was we also had their India despite the pandemic and what's been going on, um, which is very, very live and very, um, you know, serious grave issues right now. We had Brazil, we had Russia, we had Saudi Arabia, we had African countries. So everyone that needs to come together from the nearly 200 nations for the Paris Agreement to be rejuvenated. And with that, that brought also then um, emissions reductions um, commitments from Japan, 46%, um, Canada, 40 to 45%. The day before the summit, we had the EU tightening um, to 55%, um, UK, 78% emissions reduction. Um, Australia did not move. Um, but overall, we get this sense of a massive reset moment. And Jean-Jacques, I just want to mention also, um, if I may, that this reset moment for governments has also then been echoed in a bit of a reset moment for finance. Mm. So one surprising component to me last week was to see the reset moment for US banks. Um, this is the most mainstream of the mainstream finance community. And to see Jane Fraser, the incoming CEO of Citigroup, up there highlighting how Citi, alongside Bank of America, is making a net zero target, that felt to me as potentially a turning point for the finance sector, although we still need to see the implementation like we do with all of these net zero targets. Yeah, thank you very much. Maybe a, a comment uh, on my side uh, on um, the analysis uh, you delivered. I, I think uh, it was uh, very interesting to see indeed uh, the uh, positioning of the US president, uh, because most of the time when uh, uh, an American president is talking about climate, uh, he, we cannot say he or she, because so far it has been he, uh, he talks mostly to its uh, public opinion. Uh, I remember pretty well uh, Obama in uh, Copenhagen was delivering a speech to its opinion. Uh, and Biden, in a way, was delivering also a speech uh, to the world, but mostly to its opinion. And indeed, it was very interesting to look uh, at the reframing or the reorientation uh, of uh, the climate challenge, uh, explaining that it was basically an opportunity. So I think it was uh, it, it was quite striking from that perspective. Um, and another comment uh, on the, the commitment uh, of the uh, finance uh, players uh, in the US. Uh, I think that's great. Huh? We all need that. Uh, and in a way, as Europeans, uh, we can just sell to them uh, welcome to the club uh, i think it's good uh, that they joined the club finally um you know ha has there been any things that you've been surprised about in the summit or things that you didn't ex you didn't particularly expect you mentioned the reset moment for the american finance are there other things that were particularly striking from your perspective yes i think that china i mean that was going you know, to greatly monitored um, by many, um, although we didn't get a significant increase in ambition from China um, and the focus is still on um, emissions intensity rather than absolute emissions reductions. What we did hear is President Xi's saying um, that coal would peak and that they would look to increasingly strictly control coal-fired power generation and consumption um, 
in the period following 2025. Um, so that isn't everything we'd like to see, but it is nevertheless, I think, a good signal in the right direction following on from China's 2060 carbon neutrality announcement. So if that was followed up with further action by the time of COP26, I think that would be um, very, very significant. Um, and, and then I think the other thing that was a su surprise to me um, was the UN Secretary General um, specifically. So the first part of the speech of the UN Secretary General focused, um, you know, entirely as it should, on the state of the planet, a broken planet, um, the need not to borrow from um, future generations and what governments need to do, the vulnerable countries. But towards the end of the UN Secretary General's speech, um, he focused on the private finance sector. And I thought that was surprising to see it elevated um, uh, in terms of uh, finance being seen as a critical enabler. And specifically what the UN Secretary General said was that he looked forward to um, the new Glasgow Finance Alliance, which we can talk about a bit more in a moment, convened by Mark Carney being very welcome. And then he said um, he would welcome all members of the Glasgow Finance Alliance and finance actors um, having the same gold standard and high ambition of the UN-convened Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance. So to decode that a bit, what the UN Secretary General was saying was that he welcomed 2025 targets um, from all finance actors. And I thought that was quite um, a clear message to the, to the finance community, if you read between the lines. Okay, I think message well uh, well heard. Uh, we, we'll see what will be the the two twenty five uh, announcements uh, in uh, in the in the coming month. Uh, I hope. Uh, j just one thing. One of the surprises for me uh, of um, the summit uh, was the position of Brazil. If there was. Uh, <laughs> A country I was not expecting, at least not a country, but a president, let's say, uh, that uh, I think we were not really betting on anything. Uh, have you a comment on that? Uh, or maybe you have uh, an insight on uh, how President Biden convinced or uh, or gently encouraged, uh, to use a British understatement, uh, Mr. Bolsonaro, to, uh, to take a commitment there? So it was terrific that Brazil was a part of the summit because they obviously have such a key role. Um, to play in terms of safeguarding carbon sinks and um, ending illegal deforestation. Um, and actually, it's interesting you mentioned to Brazil because I had a couple of commentators saying, oh, Brazil's tightening its commitment. But actually, there wasn't any real tightening mm. of their commitment that was there. If anything, you could even reinterpret it as a weakening of the commitment. And I think, Jean-Jacques, this gets to the heart of the issue, which is it is about the targets, but it's really about the actual policies that are there that are going to underpin things. And it's about near-term accountability. Um, and so the thing that I also heard Brazil um, you know, say from President Bolsonaro is, we need a lot more finance. We need a lot more money for this. And this comes back to the heart of the problem with the Paris Agreement, which is developing countries. So the Paris Agreement bakes in this idea of common but differentiated responsibilities. A continued sore point for the developing countries is around the financing, particularly the public finance. And we heard mentioned at the summit a few times the need for the promised 100 billion US dollars 
flowing. So there's some progress on that, but it remains very difficult. And that brings me to thinking about, you know, this interconnection with the pandemic. So we are going to need to see governments really stepping up in terms of um, sharing not only emergency medical supplies, fantastic, you know, to see the US now uh, really stepping up shoulder to shoulder with India on this, but we're also going to need to tackle off vaccines. Um, we won't have world leaders at the Paris Agreement, um, you know, meeting in Glasgow uh, if they can't come, if they haven't been vaccinated and if their people are really suffering and they have to tackle things um, that are much more immediate at home. So we're going to have to nail some of the financing also around the pandemic as well um, and tackle the social issues that are health issues um, that are central to being able to move forward further and advance with the Paris Agreement implementation and really delivering on these 2030 or tw even 2025 targets. Alors, you mentioned uh, Glasgow. Huh? Uh, so, uh, in a way, uh, how do you um, see uh, what has been achieved last week uh, on the road to Glasgow? Uh, I believe that the ultimate ambition of the British authorities, uh, and that's for good, uh, is that uh, we don't even remember a Paris Agreement afterwards, but we only talk about Glasgow Agreement because that would be a, a massive new step. Uh, so what are your expectations based uh, on uh, what has been achieved last week uh, for Glasgow? Uh, and do you think Basically, the Biden summit uh, is uh, rightly paving the way a, a little bit as uh, the uh, UN uh, General Secretary summit uh, six months ahead of Paris uh, was the key moment of mobilization of leaders to prepare uh, the summit. Because I think we all, all learned from Copenhagen that you need to have them meeting at least once before if you don't want uh, to, uh, to face a, a real problematic uh, situation uh, on D-Day. So what are your expectations uh, on Glasgow so far based on what has been achieved last week? Last week? Sure. So I think last week was really undeniably helpful in terms of the road to COP26, that reset, the US um, credibility, um, international cooperation um, starting to heal um, and take shape even more and some of the additional commitments that have been made. But it's still a long road over the next six months. And the big issues that need to be resolved in the, in the run up to COP26 and to have been resolved as fully as possible by the time of November and the Glasgow um, meeting will be the Paris Agreement rulebook. So the rules of operation, um, unbelievably, five years on, we still haven't nailed what are the rulebook. Um, uh, and that includes things like different timings for when countries um, are, you know, the country nationally determined contributions, what's covered there, um, some of the accounting um, parts of it. Um, then we've got the whole ambition level um, towards net zero consistent with 1.5. And the IEA has highlighted that this year emissions are um, looking to rebound a massive emissions reduction gap we still have. So we need those domestic um, policies to be in place alongside the targets. And then 
public finance we already mentioned that has to be nailed with the developing countries um, and then um, I think this elephant in the room is the levels of cooperation that are needed um, between the three highest emitters which is the EU, US and China so that's been set off to a good trajectory uh, we've seen the EU um, and the US moving and now China we're going to see uh, need to see a lot more happening um, in terms of coal um, and further movement on renewables, transport, building, whole host of areas. Um, the other thing to mention that's obviously pretty important on the road to COP26 is the Convention on Biological Diversity with China due to host the CBD in October. And what the pandemic has highlighted, obviously, is our frail um, connection and relationship that we have with nature. And um, as a climate advocate, I think what it's also highlighted for me is the interconnection between climate and nature. We can't do climate and then come to nature. We're going to have to do both of these together. So all of that means that there's um, quite a few things that need to be solved. So some of the things to watch out for would include the G20 Leaders Summit in October. And feeding into that is the G20 Finance Minister's track. And in the past, um, back in 2016, the finance ministers um, uh, did have some very useful tracks of work. This year, they have a sustainable finance track of work. There's numerous other areas as well. Um, the sustainable finance track of work at the G20, feeding into the finance ministers, is co-chaired by the US and China. So there's a fantastic example of international cooperation. And I'm optimistic that some of the good work of the EU um, could start feeding into this forum as well. Okay, great. Uh, I think uh, you've uh, highlighted a key point, which I think uh, is very important for the, the investors that are listening to us. Uh, it's uh, for me the fact that climate uh, cannot be, I would say, any longer considered as a separate issue from uh, the big international game, if you allow me the expression. It's really now more and more at the heart of international negotiations and I would say international balances uh, of power. Uh, this is clearly something that I think that summit has made quite clear. Uh, and you started to tackle that a little. How do you see uh, the potential cooperation between uh, US and China uh, on, on the climate front? Because it seemed that uh, during the intervention of the Chinese president, clearly uh, China was putting aside a number uh, of, I would say, conflictual issues uh, with the US, clearly mentioning that they were ready to do that uh, to tackle the climate challenge. What is your assessment of that? Uh, how do you see the, uh, I would say, evolution uh, of the uh, Chinese-American relationship uh, generally speaking, and its impact on the climate negotiations? Yeah, it's a million-dollar million question. And uh, Jean-Jacques, I'm sure as you remember from your um, involvement in the Paris Agreement itself, how critical that US-China cooperation really was um, for the Paris Agreement and giving confidence to other governments around the world that all of the big emitters were really working. So I think this is exceptionally difficult um, for President Biden domestically. Um, in every year, this is difficult, but it's particularly difficult um, this year and given the you know recent history of US-China um, relationships. But what I would say um, as maybe 
bit more optimistic is that we're seeing a renewal of US international cooperation, cooperation and multilateralism. And climate could be one area where the US and China would be able to cooperate. So what exactly could that look like? Well, there are different areas for cooperation, but all of these, I think, will be very difficult. One area for cooperation, for example, could be on technology, but that in itself is fraught with many challenges. Um, another area could be around finance of overseas um, infrastructure. That is also very difficult. Um, if we think about the Belt and Road, some very good initiatives on greening the Belt and Road, but not without controversies um, um, also um, for, for many markets and including um, for the US. Um, for other areas, I think sustainable finance, although it's probably lower down the priority list um, compared to, for example, transforming energy systems, uh, could be quite an interesting area for cooperation and there's some very specific forums that exist for this so for example we've got the NGFS which is obviously kindly um, yeah, uh, Banque de France plays a leading role in that and that's the forum as as as, as you know as um, I, I know you've been very involved in this for financial regulators and supervisors to coordinate together so that could cover off areas such as climate risk climate scenario analysis and and then we've got forum I mentioned, like the G20 Green Finance Study Group. There's also the International Platform for Sustainable Finance. So the um, European um, Commission Sustainable Finance um, work includes this platform to help exchange internationally. So it would be very interesting to see the US and China finding that a useful forum to further advance. For global investors, of course, what we want to see um, is that there's increasing convergence, not just in policy ambition, but also in the whole area of sustainable finance mm. and in terms of the kind of climate disclosures that we get as at the end of the day, um, with a global portfolio, you just have to have a consistency and better disclosure. Yeah, and I think on that front, on the conversations uh, happening between uh, the uh, European authorities and the Chinese authorities of, uh, I would say, coordinated taxonomies, let's let's call it that way, uh, is uh, is interesting. Even if at some point in time, I think there will be a clash between the, the conception uh, at the European level of taxonomy and double materiality uh, and uh, the uh, let's say American standards. But let, let's let, let's uh, maybe that's uh, something that we can discuss uh, later on. It would be a rather ra rather technical conversation. Uh, but um, as you were mentioning, I think indeed uh, it's uh, interest. It will be very interesting to see the evolution of the uh, American-Chinese relationship on that front. Uh, in Copenhagen, I have a very personal uh, souvenir about that. I remember pretty well President Obama getting into the room of the Chinese president, uh, coming uh, to see him and basically passing him the message that he was not going to announce anything. The summit was dead. Uh, exactly at that moment. Uh, so it was, uh, and so the fact that the two presidents, uh, Biden and Lee, uh, aligned uh, last week, I think is uh, is extraordinarily positive, despite the fact that there are a number of very uh, important challenges that you mentioned. You you briefly mentioned uh, uh, India in, the, I would say, the uh, introduction of this uh, conversation. Uh, but of course, uh, at the moment, uh, India uh, is uh, facing a very uh, difficult situation uh, on the pandemic front. Um, I think all the countries are 
trying to do their best uh, to uh, to cooperate. I think, by, by the way, this is probably the very first time that we see a, a form of uh, true organized uh, international cooperation since the beginning of the pandemic. And there was a number of initiatives, but they were not that organized. This time, it seems that there is... It's, type of uh, general organization uh, with the UK, with the US, with the EU, uh, all trying to uh, to help. Uh, well, the Indian position uh, in uh, the uh, any climate deal is going to be absolutely crucial uh, to, uh, to achieve uh, the targets um, that are uh, set in the Paris uh, Agreement. Let's imagine that on the pandemic front, things are getting better, uh, let's hope, uh, in India. How do you see uh, the uh, uh, evolution of the positioning uh, of uh, India? Uh, do you perceive the possibility of uh, carbon uh, neutrality commitment? Uh, how, so what, I what is your assessment of the uh, Indian position? Yeah, thanks so much. And um, obviously, with being part of the Indian diaspora, uh, my heart really goes out to the vulnerable communities and people and the health workers um, in India. So, so where are we? So, um, I think we're quite far off where India would need to go. There were rumors before last week of India setting a net zero goal. Uh, we didn't see that happen. So, right now, today, um, India's target is 175 gigawatts renewable energy capacity by 2022, 450 gigawatts by 2030. Solar investment has been ramping up. And last week, um, Prime Minister Modi highlighted the International Solar Alliance, a new India and US climate clean energy. But the fact remains that India needs to phase out coal uh, by 2030. And coal capacity is really not looking like it's on the right track. Uh, so what would be needed for that is, again, it's a big elephant in the room. Um, talking about just transition in a developing country is very, very different. And I think this will come back to, again, um, the politics needing to see China acting um, and probably also will end up involving a conversation around the financing and then how exactly is this meant to shift and how fast can it do? What kind of technology transfers, for example, um, could uh, further help accelerate what is needed um, and how will we tackle off some of the health issues first, um, as, you, as you've already mentioned, um, that could well go on into um, November, if not even um, longer. Uh, and Jean-Jacques, the other area that um, we didn't talk about much and happy to pick up later is probably around carbon pricing, um, mm. as that's another area that we we need to see move. But I'll, I'll just turn back to you and also interested in, you know, very much in your thoughts in terms of, you know, the developing countryside, um, as obviously Amundi's done a lot of work in this area, um, mm. particularly with the, you know, the, the fund you've got with the IFC. Mm. No, but I think we, we see uh, that when, so we recently uh, published, thanks for the question, uh, we recently uh, published, uh, uh, I would say, a new research piece uh, regarding the evolution uh, of the green bond market uh, in emerging countries. Uh, I think basically uh, the curve looks like this. Uh, so that's, uh, that's promising uh, in terms of uh, development. At the same time, let's uh, let's be quite clear uh, and let's face it: uh, if uh, indeed, as you mentioned, uh, in a number uh, of uh, developing countries, there is no exit uh, from coal. Um, there is no way we can meet the targets. So the question is, uh, what can we do about it uh, as investors? Uh, at least what we try to do is to align our uh, 
stop financing coal policy uh, with uh, what is, uh, I would say, requested by science. Uh, and so uh, that's, I think, uh, what uh, we shall all do. Um, in a way, investing into coal at the moment uh, is just sorry to say, but totally stupid from a business perspective. Uh, it was interesting this very morning in Japan, they finally decided after the pledge that was made by the Japanese uh, premier uh, to uh, to stop uh, the project uh, to uh, create their last uh, thermal coal uh, unit. Uh, so that's exactly the type of signal we need. But I think on on the develop in the developing country uh, on the developing country side, I think there is a lot we can do to develop new financial instruments. Uh, and uh, I think a lot can be done also on the social side and the equation. Uh, I think there is a lot of potential appetite for, in, for investors, for instance, to the development of social finance, uh, big scale uh, in developing countries. But at the same time, uh, this will not work if we do not decide at the same time not to invest anymore as a financial community uh, into some activities. Uh, and here, uh, I think it's great to see, as you mentioned, uh, that there are very strong commitments uh, by the uh, American players uh, of the financial community. Uh, now it needs to be, uh, I would say, put in practice uh, on, on the active side and on the passive side. Which is uh, which is also, as you know very well, quite uh, quite quite complicated. But the fact that this very morning uh, MSCI, a very important index provider, announced uh, that they were, I would say, uh, launching an index that is a net zero index uh, on a global equity basis, I think is a is a very uh, is a very good and important and important signal. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe but on the last point you, you mentioned, uh, I think on the carbon pricing, I think we are all uh, we are all aware of the fact that we would love to have, a, 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 I would say, a unique signal price uh, at the worldwide level. At the moment, uh, under, I would say, uh, market pricing uh, mechanisms, you only have, uh, I would say, a little less than half uh, of the total global emissions. Huh? Uh, so do you think uh, that progress can be made uh, in, uh, in uh, it's, I would say, on the road to Glasgow on that front? So I, it would be terrific to see that progress. I mean, we hear this again and again from investors and from corporates that carbon pricing is really critical. And what we need to see is that all the major economies have carbon pricing schemes covering emissions in power and industry by 2030. Um, and you know, we need the kind of prices around 60 to 85 US dollars by 2030 um, in the leading countries, developed markets, and at least 35 to 50 elsewhere uh, and we need to see carbon border adjustment mechanisms probably driving a bit of um, convergence so in the US I think this is going to be quite a challenge um, they've got the smaller schemes in California um, and in certain other states but to get a national approach would be difficult I think the EU um, ETS holds some uh, interesting examples and learnings for others I'd be interested in your views um, in that and the extent to which China could extend um, its coverage and how all of this could coordinate internationally is also uh, an area that's uh, ripe for discussion over the next six months. 
Mm. I think something interesting that we see from the corporate side is more and more corporates, not that many at the moment, but at least some uh, internalizing themselves a carbon price uh, onto their balance sheet uh, and in the cal calculation of their capex, etc., which I think is a, is a very interesting approach, uh, which yeah. uh, that we're totally supportive of. So I think that that's also a way to do it <laughs> bottom up. Uh, and then for uh, the comment on the EU ETS, I, I think. It's a market instrument that works well as long as it is protected uh, from uh, lobbying influence. L let's face it, huh? if the carbon price uh, on the ETS market has not been appropriate uh, during a number of years, it was just due to the fact that the uh, European Commission was delivering too much uh, allowances uh, yeah. in comparison to what was needed uh, and didn't have and that's not the foot of the European Commission, any uh, me capacity or mechanism capacity uh, to withdraw some allowances uh, uh, into the systems uh, to, adapt to, uh, the to adapt to the situation. So I think this has been corrected, uh, but I think the key thing, if you want to have, I would say, a carbon market that is effective, what you need is to have... Is totally control the independence uh, of uh, the uh, allowances uh, distribution. Otherwise, yeah. the whole thing is uh, may, coll may collapse and then sends a very, very bad, uh, very, very bad signal. I think that would be uh, what I think is interesting with the UETS is that personally, I do not that much believe in compensation because I think it's mitigation that is the key criteria. But if you want uh, to uh, compensate properly, the best thing you can do at the moment is to acquire quotas on the EU ETS market and delete them afterwards. Uh, because yeah, then, that's, yeah. no, but that's, yeah. that's true compensation. No? Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, I believe, more efficient than uh, committing to plant trees somewhere. I don't say that not planting yeah. trees is not useful, huh? but uh, I think that's, that's uh, where the market is efficient, uh, is that, uh, that there are also participants that can enter into it and make the thing even more uh, I would say, uh, um, even more stringent uh, to the issuers uh, because you have the capacity to get go on this market, buy allowances, and withdraw them. Uh, so, yeah, and it was interesting what you just said about also that as an investor you find it very, um, you know, you welcome corporates um, yeah. looking at carbon pricing and having like an internal kind of carbon price that they use to guide their activities and strategy. I actually heard an asset owner recently say um, that they've set um, their um, a portfolio wide. Um, net zero target for 2025 and that they're thinking about that as if it was almost like an internal carbon price yeah. um so not that they won't have returns but just it helped them really factor in um what they need to do to guide their investment strategy and that same investor actually um also said that uh, last week at the biden climate summit um that they would like to see sovereign funds stepping up a lot mm -hmm. more as well which was um interesting yeah I think it's, uh, I'm not going to make a marketing or publicity uh, to the, the asset owner you're mentioning, but I think you know, <laughs> I know who you're, uh, who you're, who you're thinking about. Um, maybe uh, as uh, we are, we still have a few minutes, but uh, coming back into the investor's shoes. Uh, so uh, as, uh, uh, let's assume that you are in the shoes of an investor. Uh, what are for you the, the, the few key takeaways from the Biden summit? Yeah, so I think the main takeaway is that the US is moving 
And this is going to significantly shape and is already shaping the policy landscape. So if you are an investor with a global portfolio, um, just think about the fact that the following countries are now setting net zero 2030 targets and they are bound to be in your portfolio. US, Japan, Canada, China, although you know you can argue about that a bit. Um, South Korea covered off financing coal power, the EU, the UK. Um, so these are major, major economies that are in your portfolio and this train has left the station. So that then comes back to, well, how as an investor are you well positioned to understand how these governments are going to get to net zero? Um, what are the pathways? What does this mean at a sector level? Because one of the key things around net zero is this, this isn't just about, you know, the little bit of green bonds. This isn't just a bit about coal divestment. This is about every single sector of the economy, um, from utilities through to, you know, the built environment. Um, absolutely everything will need to change. And understanding the route, the pathways to get there, climate scenario analysis can help in this quite a lot, is very important. And then relating to that, what are those governments going to expect from the finance sector? So, um, Today, there's a COP26 race to zero campaign um, that has over 160 firms from the finance sector in it. They have all set a net zero target. Those kind of feedback loops are going back into government. And I think the expectations will be higher and then start filtering in apolitical ways, but, you know, to financial regulators, supervisors, that this isn't just about climate risk. This is now also about portfolio alignment with net zero. How are you going to get there? Who's well positioned? Um, and the opportunities that there are in financing the transition. And there's a myriad of practical tools and frameworks out there. Managers are extremely well placed to help their clients um, be ahead of the game, understand what's happening at the sector, at the individual and um, corporate entity level, um, and to work with clients on net zero alignment. Yeah, and I think you, you raised something very important. Uh, it's uh, it's not about risk anymore. It's uh, it's about uh, alignment. It doesn't mean that uh, the risk agenda is off the table, but it's uh, now it's about alignment. That's that, that's the key element uh, that is uh, that is now there. Um, okay, and so Sagarika, because you you started uh, this conversation by making us uh, salivating a little uh, about uh, the uh, I would say a potential cooperation that PRI is launching. So uh, can you telling us a little bit more about that and what are your expectations on the PRI side uh, from uh, the finance sector? Sure. Um, so, uh, so actually, I just highlight something that was um, it was launched last week with the, with the support of many in the finance sector, um, which is the Glasgow Financial Alliance. So this is actually convened by Mark Carney and the climate champions for COP26 and COP25. Um, and the aim of this is to bring together uh, leaders across the finance sector from different subsectors, so banks, 
insurers, asset owners, managers, and others that help make up the financial system um, to coordinate together uh, towards Glasgow and specifically to um, help drive convergence in ambition around net zero. So, um, what was launched last week was a new um, banking net zero alliance by UNIPFI. It's got 43 banks in it representing 28 um, uh, trillion in assets under management from 23 countries. They joined together with the insurers um, and with the 87 net zero asset managers, um, with the um, 37 asset owners and the net zero asset owner alliance. So, um, PRI's role in that is that we're one of the conveners of um, two of the initiatives that I've mentioned that are more on the investor-focused side. So, the Glasgow Financial Alliance is going to be um, working out with its with its participants over the coming weeks, what are the couple of two or three areas that the finance sector together could really push on um, towards COP26. So, we very much look forward to any input from that. And if you'd like to be a part of the Glasgow Finance Alliance convened by Mark Carney and the Climate Champions, the way to do that is you need to set a net zero target. And it can't just be any old net zero target, not that you would want to do that. It's got to be robust. So, it needs to ideally be via one of the initiatives that are officially recognised by the UNFCCC Race to Zero campaign. And that's going to have to include, it's either 2030 or 2025 target. It needs to cover all scopes. Um, You need to be accountable and on the hook for explaining how you're going to meet the target and um, what the uh, reporting lines are going to be so that stakeholders have got visibility around this. You're going to have to have a responsible approach towards offset. So, it's not easy, um, but that's where the bar is being set um, and that PRI is supporting. Very much welcome you to join. Um, If you're thinking, wait a minute, I need to just get more up to speed and I need to know what some of the baby practical steps that you can take. Um, I want to make sure you know that PRI, together with London Stock Exchange Group, we've published a guide. It's called the um, uh, COP26 Guide to Investor Collaboration. You'll find it on the PRI website and it covers steps you can take. It's also got a directory of the different initiatives if you're trying to find your way around um, and work out what would be useful and also also a directory of frameworks and tools ranging from the EU taxonomy to TCFD. So, I hope you find that of practical use. And I did want to say just before we do finish, Jean-Jacques, um, uh, that we really very much appreciate um, Amundi's own leadership in this space. And I know you've been relatively modest on this, um, but you know, when I think back to the original Paris Agreement, Amundi was there um, and you helped convene a bunch of um, investor leaders in Port portfolio decarbonisation, carbon footprinting. Maybe it seems old school now, that was five years ago, um, but it really helped catalyse things. So, it's been delightful to see how over the last five years and now in 2021 um, that you're still at the forefront of this um, and working very much with your clients on all of these key topics and an innovation um, because that's really going to unlock what's needed um, to accelerate the transition to net zero. 
Well, thank you very much, Sagaika, for your kind words, and I think it's uh, it's always good to remind a little of history. So thanks, uh, thanks for that. Uh, and um, so I think uh, we will be, of course, by definition, extremely supportive of the alliance. Uh, and uh, I hope you will be uh, with us uh, on on the 10th of June uh, for our World Investment Forum that will be on a digital basis. Th- there might be a little chance that Mr. McCann is there as well. Uh, so, uh, so 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 maybe at this time uh, you you will uh, hear from us uh, regarding what will be uh, our short-term commitments. Uh, that's a moment uh, I wish everybody uh, that is on the call will join to see a little bit uh, what uh, we will try to do on our, on our side uh, and we'll try to, uh, to do our best. Um, I think we're coming to the end of this conversation. Sagaika, it was absolutely great uh, having you. Thank you so much uh, for, uh, I would say, uh, your uh, highlights, for your insights as well. I think uh, we would keep uh, from this conversation uh, the idea of a reset moment. Uh, I think uh, you opened the conversation with this concept. I think uh, it's an important one. Uh, so let's hope uh, it's uh, indeed a reset moment. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, as you're part uh, of uh, the Indian diaspora, I think we are all, uh, of course, uh, thinking about uh, the uh, situation uh, of our Indian colleagues and friends at the moment. So uh, a word of support uh, to them. And we know that for Amandit, it's important for us also because we have a, a major partnership uh, with SBI there. So we are thinking a lot uh, to uh, our colleagues uh, in India and their beloved ones. Uh, based on that, uh, I wish you uh, all uh, the best day possible. Uh, keep safe for those who can get vaccinated. Uh, and Sagarika, thanks again uh, for uh, everything and hope to see you soon, uh, no later than the 10th of June. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.